Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Chuck Russell's 1994 movie, The Mask. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand... And this week, guys, it's more as a TV fan that I didn't understand. So I feel like I've got a little bit of an understanding of the um, the geography of the DC universe. So there's Metropolis and there's Gotham, which everyone knows about. And then I met Star City through Arrow and Central City through Flash. And I've heard Coast City mentioned. But then this week, someone got on a bus to Opal City. Now, what is an Opal City and who lives there? Um, you probably should have read uh, an article I published on cinematicmultiverse.com in which I proposed that someone should make a TV series of the 1994 to 2000, 2000, 2001 um, DC series Starman. Um, so that worked out well. You got to plug something. It's almost like I planned it. It's almost like I googled it, saw a name, and went, "Oh, Sebel likes to talk about this." <laughs> um, so the interesting thing about Starman, Starman as a character and as a name, w- existed way back in the Golden Age, um, but his the city that he operated in was never named. And then in and then you so you had the original Starman who was called Ted Knight who fought crime um in a red and green costume with um a cosmic rod that was basically this um staff that in a well like a kind of handheld thing actually in, in his time that enabled him to fly and, and gave him other powers and stuff. Um there were then various other versions of Starman like completely unconnected but DC just seemed to quite like reusing the name like kind of in the seventies and eighties. But then in the nineties a writer called James Robinson um, started a, a new series that was based around the son of Ted Knight, the original Starman. Um, and I won't really describe it in much more detail because I already do all of that in this article, so you should head over to the site and read it. Um, <laughs> but it's a fantastic series. It's one of my favourite comics ever published. Um, but one of the things about it is that Robinson very specifically decided to set it in a city where he could define a lot of the character and geography of the city. So he created Opal City and essentially retconned that that was always where Ted Knight had lived because unlike Gotham and Metropolis in his original 
stories like the city had never been named um, but the idea was that he had always fought crime in Opal City and Opal City is very it's got a very distinct character um, a lot of art deco stuff and um, a lot of kind of because one of the things about Jack Knight the lead character is that he's a, a vintage junk dealer um, so the kind of character yeah. of the city and the character of his personality play into one another quite a lot as well um, but it really is it's one of the DC, DC series that's had the strongest sense of geography um, so you know it's a good one to pick in terms of talking about um, the strengths of DC being able to have its own cities and, and have the writers and the creators give those cities a personality that's not just New York or California you know sort of uh, and then yeah. California isn't a city Los Angeles okay. Um, you know, okay so two Two follow-up questions. Yeah. Number one, this has this this fella has nothing to do with either David Bowie or the John Carpenter movie. No. It's completely removed, right? Yeah, but it, it's annoying okay. because if you try to Google it, you tend to get both the John Carpenter movie and obviously David Bowie. I think. Um, one of the things that because one of the things that Robinson does with the Starman series is as I say you've had all these other versions of the character in the 70s and 80s who were completely unconnected um, and actually he ties them all together into one big long legacy and that's the other great thing about the series is it's all about legacy heroes and and that kind of thing which is a big thing I love about DC Um, and when he goes back and does stuff with the 70s character who had literally I think he'd appeared in one comic in the 1970s and was then forgotten about and he kind of retcons in other stories stories with him and because it's in the 70s he does have people basically people called him Starman because of the David because he reminded them of of David Bowie because he's like this blue skinned red haired alien guy (laughs) so people call him Starman in reference to the David Bowie song but no one thought he looked like Jeff Bridges. No, but actually, again, <laughs> um, the 80s version of the character, um, look him up. I mean, he doesn't look 100% dissimilar, even though in, in every other sense it bears little relation. But uh, I think it's just the fact that he's got long 80s hair, kind of, uh, you know, he's got, he's got a, bit, a bit of a wavy do that's not a million miles away from Jeff Bridges. Amazing. Um, and so then, so I, I think I'm right in saying that Coast City is Green Lantern, right? Yeah. And then, are there any other major DC cities? Um, you've got, because uh, as well as Central City, you've got um, Keystone City, which is where the Jay Garrick Flash is from. Um, yeah. And, but obviously, initially, they didn't exist in the same universe, but but I think now do. Um, yeah, Coast City, you mentioned. Um, the uh, Captain Marvel, you know, Shazam, lives in Fawcett City, which is basically named after Fawcett Comics, who were his original publisher. Um, okay. What else is this? He had Gotham Metropolis. Like or um, the, no, Fawcett, F-A-W-C-E-T. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, National City from Supergirl doesn't exist in the comics. No, it doesn't. Oh, really? Yeah. No. Well, because I guess she's just in Metropolis. Well, no, actually, I mean, Supergirl's kind of been around different places depending on which version of the character. But the other thing about DC is, while it has the fictional cities, it does have the real cities as well. Um, And actually, I think Supergirl, there was the stuff where she went to college, and I have a feeling that was maybe in Chicago. But you do have characters going to other... You do have characters going in, in real cities as well. Um, you know, some stuff set in New York... As, as well does as the Batman, fact you've got Metropolis and Does Gotham. Batman ever go to New York and just sort of look a bit confused? <laughs> I don't know, but but, but Night, Nightwing, I think, has. And Nightwing was in... Um, also, there was a town they created called Bloodhaven, which is supposed to be, I think... It's either in New Jersey or it's a suburb of New York. Um, yeah, I think that's been referenced on Arrow, and also it's all over the Arkham games. Yeah. They're always talking about Bloodhaven. 
Um, the Teen Titans have been in New York and San Francisco, I think. I've read other stuff in San Francisco as well. I'm not sure what. Um, so it's a weird thing. It's like, where do they fit yeah. all of these cities in? You know. <laughs> um, and the fun thing about over at Marvel is, or in comics in general, is that whether they have real cities or fake cities, everything in Britain seems to be fake because it doesn't in any way resemble real Britain. <laughs> Um, I saw a former podcast, Michael Leader, um, mention this on Twitter a few weeks ago, but I, I read it in International Iron Man as well and was just absolutely stunned. Someone walks out of a Cambridge University bar where they're inexplicably singing West Ham football songs yep. and out onto a street where you can see the Houses of Parliament in the background <laughs> and then se- and then someone says specifically, we're in London. That was that was, uh, um, that was Bendis' <sighs> Iron Man recently and he, yeah, he tried yeah. to explain it by saying that, oh, that he was just in dorms. I'm sorry, Cambridge does not have dorms in London. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a good, uh, like, Spider-Man arc where... Where is the current Spider-Man arc, even, where he's in London quite a lot, and it yeah. actually looks like London, because Dan Slott <laughs> lived in the UK for a while. And the artist is right. Giuseppe Camancoli, who's Italian, so... Yeah, um, so... Yeah. It, it is possible to do the UK well. There was, um, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I normally raise an eyebrow when I see the UK mentioned in comics. No, I know. Or in movies, for instance. <laughs> like, um, you know, there's the, the the funny thing on Thor The Dark World with the terrible tube lines. <laughs> and um, I remember in the recent, the, not the most recent, Fast and Furious 6, I think it is, where they're having a um, high-speed ca- high car chase and they zoom around a completely empty Piccadilly Circus, um, <laughs> an area of London that I have never seen empty. Um, and two <laughs> seconds later, I think they start at Horse Girls Parade, go through Piccadilly Circus, and maybe 20, 30 seconds later, pull up into Battersea Power Station. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. There's, but I imagine um, probably there's people in New York and LA watching movies every week going, this is ridiculous. <laughs> We just a, never hear them. I mean, I think some of the better and worst comic examples. Not to drag this out too long, but some good. There was a, um, in Grant Morrison's Batman run. There's a Batman and Robin arc that's set in the UK, and again, it's drawn. <laughs> it's drawn by Cameron Stewart, who I think has lived. He's Canadian, and I think he's lived over here. So that was reasonably well done. And also, Morrison kind of had fun playing with stereotypical perceptions of characters, so, um, which was quite good. Um, but there was um, James. Do you remember when they did Pixie's origin in X Men? or like explored her background I was literally thinking about that a minute ago where Um, they had like was it Wales? Yeah, she's she's Welsh so it showed her hometown in Wales with cobbled streets and thatch roofed cottages Yeah, and like street markets selling fruit and stuff like it was the 1600s That was Greg Land I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know what he traced with that Ah, uh, fair enough. Well, we went on a couple of tangents there, but um, I feel I feel a lot more informed about comic book geography. Um, but we'll move on now to this week's comic book, movie, and TV news. And there is loads of stuff this week. And some of this I um, spoke about on the recent mini-sode, but was kind of big enough news that I thought we had to discuss it again here. And there's even news that I've had to bump that has broken since that I just thought, well, we'll save that for the next mini-sode because we just don't have time to discuss it all. So we'll kind of discuss the really big stuff. And um, I guess we should probably start off with Spider-Man. 
um, which now has a title. It is Spider-Man Homecoming, which was rumoured a couple of weeks ago after Sony registered some URLs. Um, so that's official now. It has a title treatment that we all really like, but apparently some people on the internet don't. People who hate fun and joy, right, guys? Pretty much. They, yeah. They're the people who hate that logo. Um, sorry if that is you, but you do hate fun and joy. Um, but also, in addition to the title, um, we have some more casting announcements. So we already knew that the movie was starring Tom Holland, Marisa Tomei, and Zendaya, if I'm saying her name right. Now, the big news here is that Michael Keaton is in talks to play the movie's villain, which is great. Um, and then Tony Revolori, who was in the Grand Budapest Hotel... Um, is joining the cast, as is Laura Harrier, who is an actress I'm unfamiliar with from TV. Um, what's probably notable there is that neither of those two are white people, and chimes with the previous rumour that the film was going to try and cast up its supporting cast non-white. Um, so guys, what do you think about all of this stuff? This also comes as um, Spider-Man in Civil War is getting some positive talk in the early reviews you uh are you looking forward to this more than you've looked forward to a spider-man film in a decade because i am yeah i mean probably. pretty much because <laughs> the last time i was really looking forward to a spider-man film would have been spider-man Sp- 3, Spider-Man 3. Yeah, I, was just, yeah. I was very excited about spider-man 3 even though it didn't yeah. turn out great but i definitely remember being incredibly excited <laughs> in the build and the up. last time my <laughs> yeah the last time my interest was justified was spider-man 2 so <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we are literally talking 12 years ago now. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, should, should we start with the title, which apparently is in reference to a comic in which in the... Nah, uh, 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 oh, it's can not. I, can it's I make not. a point here? I think... <laughs> make, that, make the point. Anyone who thinks that the Homecoming storyline is going to form the basis of the <laughs> movie is, like, just out of their fucking minds. Yeah. But could it, could it be a nod to just this is a... Sort of maybe a nod to Spider-Man coming that's home exactly to Marvel, but also that's exactly, that what, it exactly is, yeah. what it is. I mean, and <laughs> but also, also a nod like... maybe to the fact that those other characters are likely to appear in it. Nah, because like the title is so generic. Mm. Like, I think if anything, it it is emphasising the fact that this is still a Spider-Man who is not yet in college. <laughs> yeah, because as I, I understand it, homecom- yeah. homecoming is a thing that happens in America before people go to college, right? Yeah, we've all seen like, movies. They, they go and visit. Yeah. yeah, they go and visit colleges. Then they come home. I assume. <laughs> like, um, is that why it's called homecoming? I genuinely didn't know that that's why it's called. I, honestly, I don't know. I'm sort of piecing this together from. Oh, we're wading into watched. such. We're wading into <laughs> such a minefield here after criticising the fiction of the UK in comics <laughs> and movies. <laughs> going, yeah, we've seen movies with homecoming in for yeah. all of our lives. I know. And not understood what that is. I know homecoming happens. <laughs> And that it happens in high school, and that I literally think, aside from the kind of sly nod at Spider-Man coming home to the Marvel Universe, I think that's all they're talking about there. Yeah. And is it is it better than calling this, perhaps, pre- Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man? No, it isn't. <laughs> but does it... not. But it may be nice to distance it even more from the amazing Spider-Man. Would the, would the adjective Spider-Man have been an issue you know kind of dredging up those kind of memories <laughs> i mean well they view the thing is they use the best adjective on the worst movies so mm. i can understand going a different direction with it mm. yeah and i mean the other the other rumor was that it might have been called the new avenger <laughs> which i guess would have chimed with you know captain america i mean the first avenger um i quite like the idea of that spider-man the new avenger that would have been quite good yeah 
But hey, it's not. It's called Homecoming. But it does... we like we like the cycle treatment. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, people have been saying that the logo looks quite cartoony and stuff. And I'm not sure about Comics the Homecoming it looks comic wording. But yeah, it's it's got it's the first time for the movies that they've used the curved, and it's not the same font or anything. But you know. Almost every issue, and I say almost because there was a period where they didn't, but the Amazing Spider-Man logo is that curved text and pretty much always has been. And I like that it's reflective of that, and I like the fact that it's colourful rather than being blue metal, like all of the previous ones. Yeah, like, And it's not it's the not, PlayStation font. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't look like the PlayStation logo. <laughs> <laughs> Although the PlayStation 3 um, did come along after that. When, when the PlayStation 3 first came out, was it the 3 or the 2 that had it? It was the PlayStation 2 it looked like, though, wasn't it? Um... No, I was think it? it was no. I think they used the font on the PlayStation Three, and everyone went, "Why have Sony used the Spider-Man font on on the PlayStation?" <laughs> but now I think it's more identifiable as the PlayStation font than the Spider-Man font. Here's a question: In ten years, is Michael Keaton going to be most identifiable as Batman, as Birdman, or as Vulture? Are we thinking it's going to be Vulture? Everyone seems Vulture, to think right? Vulture, but they seem to think that. I think, firstly, based on the fact that he was Birdman. And partly because Vulture <laughs> is maybe the biggest one that people have heard of who they haven't used. And everyone I, knows see, that they've been trying to get Vulture into the films for, like, three or four films now. See, so, I, I kind yeah. of get the whiff of people know people who know people who've read a script. Mm. The fact that everyone just suddenly came up with Vulture. like It's like when they were talking about John Malkovich being Vulture back in back for Spider-Man 4. It was, everyone's, it was just an understood thing that everyone knew it was going to be Vulture and Black Cat. Yeah, and like, there are always yeah. things where people have read the scripts and you don't know where the rumour's coming from, but it's a semi-official source like that, and I think that's what's going on here. I'm so delighted. I'm delighted, first of all, that Keaton is making this and continues to make this comeback. Um, I personally <laughs> really disliked Birdman. Uh, thought Keaton was great, but really disliked that movie. And so I like that, in a way, this is a middle finger to Inuritu for his terrible, pompous, self-important movie. Oh, all movies are terrible, apart from the ones that I make. <sighs> So Michael Keaton here is great. I'm very happy about that. Does he, does he seem like a good vulture to you guys? Does it, does it seem to make sense? I think or, is so, there, or is there another character that you would prefer to see him play? There, There is a character that I could really see him playing, but it's a character that they won't put in this film, and that's uh, Lizard. I could really see him as Kurt Connors, but yeah. that's obviously yeah, that's not going to go in that direction. Um, <laughs> nope. So it would, it would make sense, I think. Um, you know, Craven? As, could he be a Craven? Nah. He couldn't be Craven, could he? You, you want someone nah. younger for Craven. And as, as I'm far just as trying th- to think of major villains that they haven't done. Mysterio? Well, Can he ma- be Mysterio? Major ones who I like who they haven't done really, like my favourites, would be Mysterio and Hobgoblin. There's no, You can't really do Hobgoblin without the connection to a Green Goblin, so I, I don't see how no. Hobgoblin would ever fit in To be in fair, the, the cartoon series in the 90s did exactly that. Well, okay, maybe they could. Um, but, I mean, the, the Hobgoblin would be a good way to get a Goblin-ish character without having to go down the Osborne route again. So that could be, and I'd love to see that. Um, I don't think we need a Goblin-esque character no. in this new film. Um, I really don't. <laughs> and it's not going to be Mysterio. They're never going to put Mysterio in a movie. As much as I would like to see them put Mysterio in Mysterio a movie, Mysterio would kind of break in the movie anyway he's like a rare example of someone whose thing wouldn't translate to screen because his thing is he makes the world look like a movie <laughs> yeah and it would just mm. be like a bizarre genre i think there's stuff thing. you can do with him but yeah i think um you could i think you can go down a different route and you know more on the illusions and weirdness than i was gonna know. say if anyone oh, tell you what i would love to see if now that they're friends i mean this is impossible because a it's not happening um it, uh, I would love to see Mysterio as an Agent Carter villain. 
That seems perfect. Season yeah, that, three of Agent Carter. Yeah. That would definitely fit, yeah. Yeah, him coming yeah. from the movie industry and all of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, please do season three of Agent Carter. <laughs> it's not happening, guys, I'm afraid. Sorry. Kaylee Atwell's going to be making some terrible procedural on ABC instead. Great. Finally. R.I.P. Peggy. Um, okay, well, uh, what do you... And, and so Tony Revolori, Laura Harrier, um, it seems like they are going for a non-white supporting cast. Um I don't think that makes up for uh, uh, well whatever di- whatever veto they had on having a non-white Peter Parker or or even a Miles Morales. Um, I, I wonder whether it's almost going to be more troubling or more distracting to cast up your entire movie non-white but have your hero, your villain, mm. and your mentor figures all being white. It's got it's going to have to be a careful balance at the very least. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think mean, it's. To be fair, this kind of rebalancing is a bit overdue anyway, so... Um, they also yeah. cast somebody who's apparently a singer, but I don't know, called Zendaya? Zendaya? Yeah, she... I think... Um, I, I get the impression she is going to be, like, the main... The female lead of the movie. That's what I thought. I thought it, it looks like they are they are going for a, a non-white main female love interest. But they've, they've said that mm. the character is called Michelle, rather than naming her at this stage as yeah. um, someone that we know. Um, I mean... I am still kind of quite keen on the idea of um, Kieran Shipka potentially playing Gwen Stacy, but um, one, that could still happen if she's not the main primary love interest in the film, which um, could happen, and two, if she's not, but it means that they're going for a more diverse cast, then that's obviously a good thing as well. So, and also, should, she's actually, called, if she's called Michelle Morales and has a, you know, I don't know, a, <laughs> n- a nine-year-old younger brother. I, I was just thinking, I reckon she might be Betty Brandt. I reckon they might go back to the original mm. original deal for it. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tony Revolori being a um a named character because he seems he seems primed to be the best friend. I don't think I don't think you cast that guy if you if you just want him to be a generic kind of school kid. Um and he seems like he would fit as a buddy of a nerdy Peter Parker. Um but yeah, I'm I am i am I'm encouraged by all of this. I love the I love the Keatonness of it all and um yeah, hopefully, hopefully you're right, James. It is addressing some kind of imbalance and maybe just reflecting, you know, the modern day of where Peter Parker lives. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe more interesting to see Peter as, you know, a minority in the in the uh, in, in the. Uh, I picked the wrong word there, didn't I? I definitely picked the wrong word. Let's White people are the real it. minority in this world. <laughs> yeah, and you can quote me on that. No, please don't quote me. Um, Hey, this might. Yeah, you, you are, never man. know. This might finally make the podcast more popular on Reddit. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, let's move on now. Um, our second piece of news, and well, so this is kind of old news because you all saw it a week or two ago. But that Doctor Strange trailer, guys, what do you think of it? Benedict Cumberbatch in action, Mads Mikkelsen, Tilda Swinton, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Hey, that's a diverse cast, apart from the white woman playing the the Asian guy. <laughs> The internet didn't like that. I mean, I feel kind of bad for Tilda Swinton that everyone kind of yeah cast her in these weird sort of sexually ambiguous roles in the first place. Like to say nothing of the race bending, but I don't know. It's a very <laughs> very odd decision on several levels. I to mean, make I, her I the ancient one. I, I mean, I think she. I mean, there's a reasonable chance that she'll be the standout thing about the film, and I think those kind of roles do suit her quite well. And I think it's obviously something that she likes playing, but. 
Um, I, no, I just thought you were going to say you feel sorry for her because of the fact that she's she's playing this role and, you know, people are already on her back for it. Although well, it, just, it does raise the question, it's like with Scarlett Johansson and Ghost in the Shell, it raises the question of, well, if you know that it's potentially problematic, why do you take the role in the first place? But, um, I don't know, I just... Yeah. It wasn't the main thing I took away from the trailer. The main thing I took away from the trailer was, mm, yeah. But then I, you know... <laughs> How many of us are people who've ever had much of an investment in Doctor Strange? Because um, uh, a friend of mine who's um, a bit older than me, who was of exactly the right age to read and love Doctor Strange comics in the 70s, um, was completely blown away by the trailer and thought it looked fantastic and can't wait for the film. So, See, I'm, I'm reading Doctor Strange currently <laughs> and really really enjoying it, actually. One of, the, one of the Marvel comics that I'm enjoying the most right now. Um, so I don't know a huge amount about the history of the character. Um, I liked the kind of the idea of the movie looking a little bit trippier and a bit more distinctive visually from the rest of the Marvel Universe, even if it does seem to be cribbing from a bunch of more popular films that have come in the past <laughs> 10 or 20 years. Um, my my main takeaway, though, from the trailer, because I don't want to get too excited about all that stuff because I haven't loved any of Scott Derrickson's previous movies, so... Um, I'm, you know, I'm bracing myself to be maybe disappointed in that regard. Um, the main thing I took away was um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm still not sure about, and I, I realise I'm in the minority here. I'm not sure about him full stop as an actor. I think he does one thing very well, and I've not seen him do a different thing, anything other than poorly. Um, whereas I just saw the character design of Mads Mikkelsen's character and went, maybe this is the Marvel movie where the villain is awesome and no one gives a shit about the hero, which would be in some way a change of pace, a nice change of pace. Um, you know, they've got Chiwetella Giafor as an, another potentially villainous character, whether he will be to begin with or not, I don't know. But yeah, that was my main takeaway, because particularly because Cumberbatch's accent is a horror show. No, <laughs> he's no, just copying Hugh Laurie, though, to be fair. That's not good enough. That was that was kind of a horror show. He got away with it because he made it sexy. It is sort of rubbing our faces in it when Hugh Laurie would have been the perfect Doctor Strange in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Aidan Gillen could have turned up and done a terrible accent as well. <laughs> Any of these people. <laughs> if there's one thing I know about Aidan Gillen is he can slip in and out of an accent like nobody's business. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I I I love I love all the costume work. I loved some of the design stuff in the trailer. Um, there's no jokes here, uh, so it, it, again, it felt kind of separate from the other Marvely stuff. But maybe maybe we'll start to see um, a little bit more. But also, it looked so origin story, don't you think? Like, yeah, it's it weird looked... actually. I remember a long time ago Kevin Feige saying something like, oh, "We're not going to do the origin story for Doctor Strange. Like, he'll just start the film as Doctor Strange and then." this trailer comes out and it's like here he is learning to be Doctor Strange <laughs> I was just going to say what if they work around that by doing flashbacks and like no you can't literally remake Batman Begins that is yeah. not going to work <laughs> well that's the problem like he has Batman's origin or Batman's Batman Begins origin anyway mm. which is that yeah. instead of instead of learning to be a ninja he learns to be a wizard <laughs> yeah um, I'm going to use this as a seamless segue but I am I'm really surprised if you'd told me a year ago that the Marvel Phase 3 movie that I was kind of in the space of a week been a little bit kind of like, eh, we'll see, was Doctor Strange, but the one that I was going to be really excited about was Thor Ragnarok. Um, I'd have told you you were crazy. But um, Thor Ragnarok, it, uh, everything, we've spoken about this before, everything that we've been hearing about it is positive and, you know, kind of going, ooh, 
that seems like they're changing their approach. That seems interesting. Hulk's going to be in it. The villain, the casting of, of the villain is cool. And then we get hit with the double punch this week of unpopular character um, taken out of movie whilst um, popular, very much liked rising actress added to the cast. So finally, Jane Foster is out. She's gone. Um, or is she? We, we, <laughs> All that we know is that uh, Natalie Portman is out. Could they recast? Yeah. Or do you think that they're not going to because there's not going to be anything set on Earth and because it looks like Tessa Thompson might be playing Valkyrie? So um, I think there will be stuff set on Earth, little bits, just because of the rumours I've heard about Odin. Um, uh, basically, Odin being banished to Earth. Um, Does that I mean think... that Odin will get to meet Darcy? Because if Darcy's not say, in it, what's the, I know that James is probably tearing his hair out The only thing I care about this film is, is Kat Denny's going to be in it or not. And if that, yeah, that's if that provides a way to get her in the film without Natalie Portman stealing her screen time, I'm perfectly happy with that. I mean, I'm just surprised it's at this long. Because I remember in um, thinking that in Age of Ultron, when, you, when they were going to be like, oh... So where's Pepper and where's Jane? And we got that we got that funny scene where they were bragging about their girlfriends, basically. But I thought the excuse for Thor was going to be, "Oh, she dumped me," and that it was going to be, "Okay, we'll play it off in a laugh." In there an was age a rumor, wasn't movie. there? There was a rumor yeah. at the script stage that that's what happened. But Which I was surprised that she was there. I was surprised surprised that she was so central to Ragnarok, given that she'd made it clear much longer before that she that she wasn't interested. Um, and and they've pulled the trigger now, and I imagine... I would imagine that is it for Jane Foster in the Marvel Universe. I couldn't see her coming back for anything else in the future. Um, well, for, it Na- for like... Natalie Portman, definitely. I can see them yeah. bringing back the character for... if they want to do the, the female Thor storyline. Yeah, well, I mean, but they seemed happy to move on from Betty with Hulk, didn't they? Yeah. Introduce new new love interests and. I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm just thinking about Kat Dennings hanging out with Anthony Hopkins now. <laughs> and thinking that could how be great. That, that's a movie that in and be. of itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, we should talk about Tessa Thompson, um, who. Um, I mean, I don't really I, I know don't... her. So yeah, well, so so basically, she's she's broken through in the past uh, in the past year. Um, big role in Creed. Um, uh, she was in Selma as well, and she was in Dear White People, and um, apparently is going to be playing a love interest. And the rumor that I saw is that that could be Valkyrie. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like that she is possibly playing someone as guardian who is going to be set up as the kind of love interest going forward for Thor. Um, because there were rumours that Valkyrie was part of the script earlier when people were wondering who Kate Blanchett was playing, except obviously that, that since then is, it seems, now unlikely that that's the case. But yeah, so Thor Ragnarok continues to look pretty good, and um, yeah, we, we're all happy that we don't have to watch Natalie Portman suffer anymore because I really like Natalie Portman it was just so clear that she gave no she had no interest in those movies mm. and I don't think either of those movies really used her well either you know in a in a set of movies that relies so strongly on character and and you know sort of quite often blunt character traits and dynamics. And there is subtlety as well, but essentially most of the characters you can point to some very specific traits, and I'm not sure you can with Jane. <laughs> Thor's um, just really into, like, disinterest. 
It just gets him going. Well, I just really hope that this me- this doesn't mean that Cat Dennings won't be in the movie because I don't know what we'd do with James. <laughs> Where I mean, could it'd you be like me finding out that they're not doing any more Agent Carter? <laughs> to be fair, I did stop watching Two Broke Girls. Like even that. <laughs> Wait, how far did you get with? I was going to say, I think you stopped later than everybody else did. Uh, season four. They're oh, still God. making it. Every, every so often, I see on Cat Dunning's Twitter feed a mention of the fact that there's a new episode about to, to air, and I'm like, God, you're yeah. still making that horrible show. Horrible, horrible show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, and um, our final piece of news. Um, I just thought we should mention it. Um, the Defenders now has uh, showrunners, and that is Doug Petrie and Marco Ramirez, who are also the showrunners on Daredevil. Um, and I mentioned this on the mini-sode um, last week, that uh, Charlie Cox mentioned that The Defenders was going to be filming at the end of this year. So that suggests either after Luke Cage, or maybe after Jessica Jones Season 2, depending on when they're filming that. Um, and probably after Iron Fist, which is which is filming soon as well. So we'll probably meet each of the Defenders, maybe get a Jessica Jones series too. But before any potential Daredevil season three, we'll be getting Defenders. So my question is, guys, do you think this is going to be stealth Daredevil season three <laughs> with was... Daredevil villains and it's Daredevil getting his buddies into help out? I was about to than... say, I think this is going to be a stealth Daredevil season three because we know they have to put Defenders out in 2017, don't they? Like, there's a contractual thing that it has to be done in that year. So they can't do they can't do another Daredevil if they've got those guys doing Defenders. Hmm. And I'm guessing Charlie Cox probably doesn't want to do just TV for an entire year or whatever, however long it would take to try and fit in yeah. all of that. I think so, just, like, logistically, they can't do Daredevil and Defenders, so they're going to, you know, pile pile their crossover show on the one character who's really hit and and do you, do you have any ideas or wishes for what that's that series will be would it be kingpin returning as a villain would it be punisher maybe or would punisher be any part of it or Electra? and okay my theory is that the punisher will be in it and right. the, the the plot will be wilson fisk working with the hand and you know, presumably there'll be some kind of like Madame Gao in there for the yeah. Iron Fist connection, I guess. Uh, so yeah, like all the criminal elements working together. But yeah, I like there's a history of that in the comics, so I think that's the way they're going to go with it. Seb, as someone who is barely caught up on many of these series, um, <laughs> do, but do you do you have any wishes for a Defender series? Just in you know, just to, just theoretically, a show with those um, four characters at its centre. Could it? Could it have? Peggy Carter, Edwin Jarvis, and Dottie Underwood in it, please. <laughs> um, no, I can't. I mean, you know, look. At, at some point, um, I, I will catch up with all of these. Um, I, I, even though I didn't watch all of season one of Daredevil, I do really want to watch the Punisher-centric episodes of season two. So I will get around to that at some point. And then, probably all the good ones are up front, Seb. Yeah, and then I might finally have an opinion on Defenders when I do that. I think my main thing would be: Are they finally going to give Daredevil a good costume? I think that would be my main concern for it. It, it has improved. I think they it kind of—they've been two. revising it noticeably. Yeah. Does, does it noticeably change by the end? Yeah. The mask—the mask, I would say, is significantly better. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and he has the Billy Club, and um, 
<laughs> yeah, it, it. And the thing is, it's so dark. That show is so perpetually dark that when he's in motion, it's really for me not a distraction in no, the way exactly. that it was when he was stood on the rooftops at the end of season one, looking out. I was like, oh no! I tell you, but when he's running around at night in the dark and kicking people, so you just can't tell. It's they got rid of the Power Ranger sparks when he gets hit, so that helps. <laughs> mm. Okay, um, so so that was the Defenders. Um, we, we've got that to look forward to probably next year. I'm gonna guess. Here's my I, I guess we go Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones season two, then Defenders. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe maybe Jessica Jones season two will be saved. Um, but yeah, so that is uh, that is it for this week's comic movie and TV news. Now. Um, we will be back shortly with our spoiler-filled discussion of The Mask. But before we do, uh, let's take a little listen to the trailer for the movie. This is the story of Stanley Ipkiss. Stanley, you are the nicest guy. <laughs> really, you are. Yeah. His job is at the bank. You're 40 minutes late. Now, that's the same as stealing. I'm sorry, Mr. Dickey. It- it'll never happen again. He loves his dog. Come on, Give him to me. Drop it. He's polite to his landlord. Do you have any idea what time it is? You know, Mrs. Peeman. What? Nothing. And the most exciting thing in his life are his pajamas. But now. Hey, you. What are you doing down there? I'm just looking for my mask. All that is about to change. Because Stanley Ipkiss is not the man he used to be. Smoking! It's like it brings your innermost desires to life. You become some sort of love-crazy wild man. I want him here tomorrow, alive! You have to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Do you? Punks? <laughs> Jim Carrey is... That's the guy! Hello! The mask. Ooh, somebody stop me! Okay, so that was the trailer for The Mask, and um, similar to, I guess, I guess whenever we do non-comic booky stuff, I always imagine that there's probably some listeners who listen to our podcast and go, like, The Mask, why are they doing that? That's a comic book movie, really. Yeah. And I say that because um, I had that uh, reaction when I added it to our document, that we, we have like a Google Doc with all potential future films or TV shows we could cover. And I didn't know back then that this was a comic book movie. And kind of watching it back this week, I saw little things. I was like, oh, I guess that that seems like it could be comic booky, But there's not a huge amount there that points towards it. Um, so I think the best point to start would be to really explain what this is based on and whether people should know that this is a comic book movie. I mean, I think... I actually think watching the movie... I mean, maybe it's just my sensibilities, but 
you look at the movie and it does have a feel of well if this isn't based on a comic book it's 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 inspired by comic books at least because it is very mm-hmm. comic booky in a mm-hmm. lot of ways but it is definitely one of those films that people would not necessarily know up front and i think that's true of i mean it's an interesting thing i think I'll talk generally about the Basque and about where it comes from, but I think it's interesting just for a little bit to talk about um, Dark Horse um, in general, because I know we have already done a Dark Horse uh, film, which was Hellboy. Um, (laughs) We've got hmm. barbed wire to come. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. There are a surprising number of films, especially in the 90s, and this is what I find quite interesting, that are based on Dark Horse. Um, without, but they are also almost all ones that people wouldn't necessarily know were, were Dark Horse comics, um, because Dark Horse occupy this really interesting position where you know for a very long time they were the clear and far away number three comics publisher behind Marvel and DC. You know, in the 1980s, Dark Horse got really big. I mean, as big as you can get in comics, but they managed to come along at a time when, um, you know, sort of comics were getting that sort of graphic novel respectability um and so you got series like sin city and concrete um that were you know kind of breakout hits that to the to the extent that any comic managed to get a wider non-comics audience dark horses stuff was doing that um the position that they kind of occupied then in the 80s was pretty much the position that um image have got now and that vertigo had in the 90s of being the place for interesting creator-owned non-superhero comics um then in the 90s amusingly they sort of occupied the position that idw um or 90s and (laughs) 2000s because the thing that they tended to do after that was publishing a lot of adaptations of movie and tv properties they do the official um Buffy and Angel continuation. Yeah, that's, um, they definitely do those. Um, they did the really great Aliens comics in the late 80s. They did some uh, really good Godzilla comics as well. Yeah, and they they were the ones who were doing Star Wars for a long time before Marvel came and wiped all of that right. stuff out of continuity. Before, after <laughs> after and before Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, because Marvel did the original original yep. ones. Yeah. Um, so that I mean that was where where they've been more recently, and and now they've kind of they published some interesting stuff, but they have found themselves as being a kind of secondary image. Where in the eighties they really were in that not dominant position, but very prominent. Um, but what's interesting is that. I think because of the, um, the the position that they held in the 80s, um, when people were going looking for comic book properties to do in the wake of Batman, obviously Marvel was such a mess that you didn't get the Marvel stuff. So instead, you had people licensing all of these Dark Horse properties, but they were comics that nobody outside of comics, and even a lot of people in comics, hadn't heard of. So just in the 90s alone... Um, the list of films based on Dark Horse. There's two that I've never heard of that are called Dr. Giggles in 1992 and Virus <laughs> in 1999. But the other ones are The Mask, Time Cop, Tank Girl, Barbed Wire and Mystery Men. Now, how many of those did you know beforehand were actually based on comics? To be fair, yeah. Tank, Girl, Tank Girl was only republished by Dark Horse. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's, I'm looking at a Wikipedia list, of course, Tank but Girl. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then in, even in the early 2000s, you had Hellboy and Sin City. Um mm-hmm. Hmm. So where does so where does the mask fit in? Was it a, was it so a the late eighties kind of thing? No, well the mask has got a really weird genesis, and again this is going to be like kind of a bit of a Wikipedia summary, and then I'll talk more specifically about the comics, which I have actually read. I really like the comics, um, what I've read of them. But weirdly, so 
Uh, the original, what would eventually become the mask, was created in the early 80s by a guy called Mike Richardson, um, who was the guy who went on to found Dark Horse. Um, mm. And he ran, he did like some sketches and character stuff in the early 80s, and then turned that into a series called Mask, spelled M-A-S-Q-U-E, um, <laughs> that bears little to no relation to the mask comics that eventually came along. Um it, that was running in Dark Horse Presents, which was the famous Dark Horse anthology series where lots of their great stuff started. Mm. Um, but then in the towards the end of the 80s, I think about 18, 88, 89, um, weirdly, it got revamped by an artist called Chris Warner, who then didn't work on the comics themselves. So Mike Richardson had created it, handed it to Chris Warner to come up with a new redesign and concept, and then that got handed to a writer called John Arcudi and an artist called Doug Mankey, who's now significantly more famous. He does a lot of work at DC, um, for them to actually do the comic. So it first got published... Um, there were four chapters in an anthology series called Mayhem where it was an inc- it was in black and white and it was an incredibly dark, violent, black horror comedy. Um, and then it spun into its own four-issue series, which was done in colour. And what they did was they collected the four previous ones as issue zero and then did a four-issue series called The Mask. And then it basically kept coming back throughout the 90s for sort of four or five-issue miniseries every so often. And there's been about ten kind of little miniseries that they've done based around it. But the interesting thing about it and the thing that really deviates it from the film is pretty much every time there's a new series, it's a different character as The Mask. And the right. only time that Stanley Ipkiss is The Mask is the original Mayhem story. So basically one issue's worth of story there, um, there was an issue where he came back actually oh yeah yeah, they, life. yeah. I, I was trying to simplify it but yeah there is an issue <laughs> where he comes back to life because yeah spoilers he gets killed off at the end of, of his story because and that's the other big difference from the movie is stanley itkiss is an absolute asshole basically and when he becomes the mask and the other thing is the mask isn't referred to as the mask he's called big head because he gets the name from the police as being the big head serial killer um, right. And basically, Stanley goes on a massive revenge spree. Um, <laughs> Stanley. And, <laughs> Stanley. Um, and then gets killed at the end of his story. And in the, the four-issue series that's just called The Mask, the one that is probably the closest to the movie, um, it's the one that came out just before the movie, or a few years before the movie, but I think it's the one that the movie was most based on, um, it's actually Callaway, the detective, is The Mask for most of it. And he's more the of a vigilante. The character. Yeah, the Peter Rigo character from the film. Um, yeah. and he, he was great, by the way. Absolutely yeah, well, great. Well, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a given with Peter Rigo. Yes, it is yeah. a given. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so and he's much more of a kind of vigilante, and it's still kind of violent and over the top. Um, and then there was, uh, in The Mask Returns, it's, a, it's a, a mob boss, and it just... So you get different interpretations of how evil or mischievous he is, depending on who wears it. But and I, hey, so I we, find get a, we get a mob boss in The Mask in this yeah. as well. <laughs> well <laughs> yeah. I find, but I do find it quite interesting, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this as we get onto the film, but the fact that they go with Stanley Ipkiss, but they make him a hero, because you even get, you get scenes in the movie which do come from the original, the earliest run, but that are a lot more violent and have more unpleasant outcomes in the comic than they do in the film. Mm-hmm. But they do lift scenes from it. Um, but then they sort of, as I say, the sort of the first couple of miniseries, the tone of them, the movie still very much softened and lightened the tone. But it's interesting to note that the first couple of series that then came along after the movie, they made them more like the movie in in terms of the style and the tone, yeah. and much more kind of slapstick rather than. 
um, as I say, you know, kind of bloody and violent, which they definitely are in the in the early runs. So is it is it more horror based? Because I mean, you said about him being the Stanley, particular being a serial yeah. killer. Yeah. So the the mask in this in the movie kind of. The idea is that it brings out the kind of the side of you that's repressed and kind of yeah. amplifies that side. Is that the same case in the comic? Pretty much, or? because I say it is the, the the personality of the wearer does still inform the you know the incarnation of Big Head, and then later they do just start calling him the mask, but he's generally referred to as as Big Head um, because the personality does change depending on who it is. It's just that. Um, you know, he straight up kills people and kills a mm. lot of people. And it's like, a lot of it is comical. Like, you know, it's it's funny slapstick violence in a lot of instances. And a lot of that is to do with Doug Mankey's art because, I mean, again, I'm going to recommend the comics to you later, but um, his expression art and the, the, the way that he draws Big Head is so funny. It's like almost every panel, every facial expression that he is pulling is absolutely hilarious and it's one of the things that really makes the series. <laughs> I mean, um, but at the same time, there are some really... There's a particular scene in the in the, the Stanley stuff that um, involves him killing his old um, elementary school teacher who had humiliated him. And it's I find it really difficult to read just for this one moment in the midst of this black slapstick comedy there's a couple of panels that are really like, not because they're gory, but just because of what happens and how it happens. It's really, really unpleasant. So it does, it does veer into that. And there is a, mm. there, and there's, there's a lot of just stuff with him just straight up, like stuff like the bit with the Tommy gun from the movie. That's an example. Um, you know, in the movie, he makes the Tommy gun and he shoots at these gangsters and they run away. In the comic, he makes a Tommy gun and he shoots these gangsters and kills them all. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I do, I do kind of get the feeling that. Like, I don't think it was intended as comedy. I just think... As horror, sorry. I think that... Yeah, like, I mean... It's, in, I... Within independent comics, there was this kind of feeling that we're not bound by the rules of DC <laughs> and Marvel, so we're going to do ultra-violence. And you had yeah. kind of... Tank Girl did it. Uh, Milk and Cheese did it. Uh, like, Scud did it. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did it to an extent. And The Mask did it. Like, you had all of these creators who were doing the same kind of this is what sells and this is what we can't do anywhere else. So this is what we're doing. And I yeah. think, I think the mask kind of comes out of that tradition. Is Scud the Rob Schraub comic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read that because he's a funny man. <laughs> he's directing the Lego movie sequel, which is exciting. Wow. Really? Um, we- okay. Yeah. 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 Um, the reason I asked about um, it being horror, because um, I did my thing, which I want mm. to do occasionally <laughs> on this podcast, and watched the film, and then went back and watched it again with the commentary on. Um, and so it was just a director's commentary with Chuck Russell. And um, he made his um, feature debut with A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which I don't know about you guys best nightmare on elm street movie in fact <laughs> flower like one of my favorite horror movies um i just love it um and he was talking about how when he was originally approached for this movie new line who made the film wanted kind of a new they wanted another freddy krueger they wanted a another franchise where they could have this kind of this villain at the center of it this kind of horror franchise and saw the mask as potentially that that basically in the mask they had another freddy krueger and could maybe build this series around him and chuck russell went ah do you know what that i'm just not interested in doing that like read read the source material read the scripts and said i don't think it works i think it works better as a comedy um still based on the same source material you know saw like but just i think it would work as a as a mainstream hollywood comedy 
And they kind of kicked the film around for another 12, 24 months until they came back to him and said, look, we can't make this work. Will you come in and pitch us the version that you you had the idea for, the comedy version? And he did, and they liked it, and that's and that's how it came about. And I just thought that was, again, talking about the adaptation process, just really fascinating that they go after the Dream Warriors director wanting another Freddy Krueger. Instead, get Jim Carrey, because that's another thing that Chuck Russell was like, you know, you make this movie with Jim Carrey or you don't make it. Um, mm. And this is obviously as well pre-him making it big. So, you know, he had the three movies in the same year. He had The Mask, Gaze Ventura and Dumb and Dumber, which just launched him as a comedy titan in the space of 12 months. Um, but yeah, so so instead you have, that's that's what they wanted to do with this franchise. And instead they make this horror film, uh, sorry, this comedy film. Except, so I don't know about you, Every time the mask is around, even though it's cartoonish and it's over the top and it's, you know, there is no real violence in the movie. In fact, I think the most violence we see in the movie is when Cameron Diaz uh, hits a guy and hits a goon in the face um, in terms of real violence. But I think that this movie for me has an edge the whole way through. I'm always kind of slightly distrustful of the mask. Um, and yeah, it makes it. I, I, and I think some people find him creepy and don't like the film because he is a bit too out there. But he's supposed to be, surely. <laughs> I, I mean, he is. No, I, I, I would agree that you find him creepy and and, he, and annoying, but I think you're supposed to is the thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there was, you know, I mean, what I'm saying is, like, some people, I think, would look at this character and go, you know, this is Jim Carrey being big and wearing mm. a strange green face. Um we we should let the listeners know. I'm massively pro Jim Carrey and and his big over the top comedy roles, which obviously informs my opinion of this film. Are you are you on the same page, guys? I I I generally consider myself a pretty big fan of Jim Carrey, but I I tend not to like the extremes of the comedy. So, for example, I don't really like Ace Ventura. Um, what? I do think I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not keen. Um, whereas I do think I do think Dumb and Dumb is one of the funniest films ever made, but I you know him in that is not him doing his most ridiculous over the top stuff, and there's other stuff going on in Dumb and Dumber as well. Where I where I love Jim Carrey is is when he starts to act, and like you know the Truman Show is one of my favorite films. Man on the Moon, he's fantastic. Eternal Sunshine. Oh, Man on the Moon is amazing. That you know that 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 set of three performances makes him for me one of the best actors of the last twenty odd years. Mm. Um, the comedy stuff I find more of a bonus, but you know I like this. I like Cable Guy. Um, as I say, I love them. Oh, and that's, and um, that's big, Seb. Cable Guy's <laughs> real big. Oh no, Cable, yeah, but Cable Guy's come back around now. It's it's almost unfashionable not to like Cable Guy now. No, I'm, I'm talking about like Carrie's performance is huge oh. in the Cable Guy, and I mean yeah. it is it is here. But I guess here you get that kind of you get that balance between not entirely, but you get the balance between semi-serious or at least acting Jim Carrey mm. and then just... Like, the thing is... But let's this, let this guy loose. In the mask that, like, I should say, I'm like I'm a big fan of Carrey in most of his roles, except for the ones where he's uh, saying vaccines give you like, <laughs> well, autism yeah. or whatever. But Yeah, present I, day Jim Carrey has become a little bit more... Yeah. Like, I'm sure you remember when Kick-Ass 2 came out, he kind of announced that he was like denouncing the movie about a, mm. a, a 
Fortnite which is annoying because he's great in that as well. He's yeah. really, really great. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Maybe the best thing in a terrible film, but yeah. you guys would disagree. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, but God, we, we're going to end up with we're going to end up with more Jim Carrey than I thought because I was just thinking about when we get to Batman Forever. That's going to be an interesting <laughs> conversation because again, I mean, okay, maybe I'm wrong to say I don't like him with his big over the top performances because I absolutely love him in Batman Forever, but that's another <laughs> podcast. So. But yeah, so. Like, even though I'm a fan, even in Ace Ventura 2, I prefer that, if anything, to Ace Ventura 1. <laughs> I don't actually like The Mask that much. Like, I I haven't seen it for years, and I was just a bit surprised that... I think it's mainly, actually, his, like, his kind of acting stuff. Like, when he's doing the big over-the-top mask things, I kind of like him, even though I'm not fully on board with it as comedy. But when he's being Stanley Ipkiss, I just wish he would drop dead. <laughs> really? Yeah. I kind of, I kind of, what I appreciated here was that yes, all of the, all of the bits where Jim Carrey is the mask, you know, that's him completely let off the leash. He is just throwing everything at the camera possible. I think, <laughs> yeah, the more, the more you like Jim Carrey, the more you're going to be on board of all that stuff. Like I said, I think there's an edge to it. There is a, there is a, a like an, for me, just an uneasy edge to every time that character's on screen. I mean, even after Cameron Diaz's character has fallen for the mask, then there's the scene where he comes back out dressed in his French outfit and he's like wooing her. And it, I, I for a moment was like watching this scene, it's like, does she, she, I don't think she wants this. And I don't trust the mask to be a character who is ever going to stop. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. There is, there is this, there is this constant sense of like I, I feel he he's so unhinged he could do anything, and that makes me uneasy in a broad comedy. But also when he is he's you know he's shooting catchphrases off into the into the camera every every thirty seconds, and he's doing that whilst also quoting other people's catchphrases and doing these huge enormous over the top movements, which are obviously then enhanced by the cgi and um gotta say this reminded me a little bit of the ninja turtles movie in a way where i just banged on about how much i loved the costume what i loved here (laughs) was that they they like employed this early cgi really effectively um in fact um this movie uh this movie was nominated for an oscar in that regard for its for its visual effects i think (laughs) um which is completely deserved but then they went full-on just latex for carrie's mask and so he's coated Mm. in latex but it it almost makes his face even more expressive. No, I, I, I like that a lot. I, I like that they 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 play with the expressiveness of Carey to get the. And it, like I talked about, how in the comic, um, Big Head has these funny facial expressions, and it's something that they're able to do in the film because they've got Carey to do it, and because they put him in this ludicrous mask, it, See, it works I, better than if they just CGI'd the face. I spent a lot of time just staring at the teeth going, are they real? Are they like... No, they weren't. I did spend a lot of time looking at the teeth, actually, as well. (laughs) So, according to the director's commentary, guys, um, they're fake teeth, and they originally just wanted them for one scene where he was going to, like, throw out this ridiculous grin. Um, In the end, they just decided to keep them, and Carrie learned to speak with them in. Wow. So he just... Yeah, so he is delivering all those lines with these enormous, ridiculous fake teeth in there. That is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, this is this is a feat of performance. The thing I was going to say about when he is Stanley, yeah, it's, yes, it's a live-action co- cartoon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When he's the mask. But actually the whole film, it's basically... Because it's merging this kind of like old school kind of like 40s Hollywood noir kind of with... Um, the the nightclub and Cameron Diaz coming in as this femme fatale and um, I mean the movie it reminded me so much of was Who Framed Roger Rabbit actually on this mm-hmm. rewatch oh there's a lot oh, definitely yeah. yeah yeah I mean uh, like with the the guy shooting the bullets out of his mouth as well I was like I almost <laughs> imagine those bullets to kind of like have a little face on and to wave at the camera as they went <laughs> I mean, past let, let's it, be clear it is it is nowhere near as good as Who Framed Roger Rabbit but no, it would clearly which is like an all time movie <laughs> yeah no but I, I but I think it has the right it has the right influences in place mm. in terms in terms of what it takes from that uh, but and and so when you are just watching Stanley Ipkiss it still is it still is kind of this slapsticky kind of fast. You know, there is Jim Carrey constantly, you know, pulling keys away from the dog or, um, you know, there's there's so much physical comedy with the dog or him hitting himself in the face with a frisbee or falling over himself trying to get the money back in the closet. And I just, um, I liked that the, the kind of Carrey was able to do that the whole way through the film. And I think the film probably also did have a lot of silent comedy influences in there as well. Um, I think I think both as The Mask and Without, Jim Carrey seems like he's trying to do some Chaplin, Buster Keaton kind of phys- early physical comedy. Um, and I think I think he's a really gifted physical comedian, and he does it really well. And then when he's in, he's The Mask, he's able to get these CG things added to it as well. And I, I kind of like I kind of agree. I I, I sorry. Um, I didn't love this movie entirely as well, but I found myself constantly kind of nodding at stuff like that and going, "Oh, I appreciate that," or "I like that," without me completely falling in love with the thing. I think my problem with it as a movie is that I don't find it funny, and it it's a bit Deadpool-ish in that regard. In that <laughs> it wants to be funny, and it really goes in hard letting you know that it wants to be funny and it's not always i think i think that's my problem with it i love that you've brought up deadpool because halfway through this movie i was trying to think i was like if they remade the mask who would who would do it now like who is the modern day jim carrey who is this yeah. kind of really gifted comedian um well steve carell also is great jim carrey but he's too old <laughs> Well, kind of, but then Reynolds has the Ryan Reynolds has the Canadianness about him as well, the kind of the, <laughs> and the inherent likability. And when the mask is breaking the fourth wall, talking, turning to the camera, delivering a catchphrase, and carrying on and doing all this Looney Tune style action, I was like, man, this would make a great double bill with Deadpool. It would make a fantastic double bill with Deadpool. In fact, <laughs> I was surprised that this was made more than 20 years before Deadpool because Deadpool se- seems like such an obvious influence on this movie. Whereas I don't, I, I would be surprised if Tim Miller was like, yeah, we were really thinking the mask when we did Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I couldn't, couldn't shake it from my head. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, if, if we're ever doing a mask remake, he's, he's the man we need. Or maybe Ryan Reynolds could meet the mask in the sequel. What well, the mask was the villain in Deadpool 2. Do you know? You guys. Do you know they've done a, a Deadpool, uh, 
a mask slash Joker crossover. Yeah. Sorry, a, a mask Joker. Uh, like they did a Batman, a, cro- a Batman the Mask comic where it's just called Joker, Joker slash Mask. Yeah. Yeah. Where the Joker does, got the mask. How does that work? Intercompany crossovers, big, big in the nineties. Not so much now that it's all corporate synergy. And so, yeah. what the Joker put the mask on? Oh God, that that can't have ended well. Do you know? Do you know how it ended? Actually, it's quite funny. It, it ended when Batman convinced the Joker that wearing the mask made him no longer funny. <laughs> so he took it off. <laughs> this sounds amazing. Which I completely <laughs> empathise with. Yeah. Oh, now I want, and, now, and now I do want to see Deadpool in the mask. <laughs> hey, maybe that would sort his um, that would sort his face out. As I, well. I imagine the mask would reject Deadpool on the basis of him being too ugly or something along those lines. <laughs> I can't see there it is- last, lasting long. There, there is precedent in the comics for the, for the mask rejecting people because there's um, the comics introduce a, an, a recurring antagonist called Walter who is this big, massive, hulking mute. He starts out as a mob henchman but is basically terrifyingly strong and powerful um, and frequently fights the various people who've worn the mask. Um, and then at the end of one of the series, um, he puts it on and nothing happens and it falls off his face again. And he looks disappointed. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you guys about the the Looney Tunes-ness of this that I keep banging on about. Obviously, like uh, the film doesn't really go out of its way to hide the fact that it's referencing the Looney Tunes. Well, if anything, there is a Taz thing. Yeah, I quite I quite like the way that it does that because it it gives you the implication that um, that facet of the personality doesn't come from the mask but comes from Stanley. Yes, which I really liked. Yeah, and that's not really something that certainly... I think, actually, if anything, it does make its way into the comics, but it makes its way into the comics after, because the series The Mask Strikes Back, which came out after the movie, has four different characters who all live together putting the mask on, and they become very different when each of them does. Like, one of them just wants to be a rock star and basically uses the power of the mask to make himself a rock star. Um, and Whereas before, I think, you know, obviously while there is a difference between the Ipkiss and Callaway versions, it's still broadly the same. And what I liked about this was, yeah, this, you know, I mean, they're not subtle about it, but they plant this thing of Stanley likes cartoons. So when mm. he finds himself in a position where he can warp reality to be what he chooses, his brain goes to the cartoons. He goes um, to giant dancing clocks. And, and the Tex Avery stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Tex Avery is all over this movie. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. And the fact when the, the specific cartoon he watches early yeah. on in the film is of, of the wolf whistling dog. And yeah. then he basically replays. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit replays. unsubtle. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. <laughs> it's unsubtle, but it's, but it's, it works. It's yeah. not like and similarly, you've film. got the Taz cushion and then he's always spinning around like yeah. Taz yeah. throughout. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. The rest of the film yeah. is not what you'd call subtle anyway, is it? So. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it's everything is enormously elevated and that's what i'm talking about like even the stuff outside of the mask i mean i love the big um the big dance number sorry not the big dance number in terms of him doing the flamenco stuff with the police although that is fun particularly like when the blonde police officer starts singing along with him <laughs> she kind of like she can't looks, stop herself looks confused yeah yeah looks confused as to why she's doing it yeah um but yeah so I, the, the one scene that i really love is the dance number in the club with the mask yeah. and cameron no, diaz i completely mm. agree that was the bit of the it, film where i was like oh i'm finally entertained what we're only halfway through <laughs> oh god <laughs> it but it, it completely pop 
stops in in that moment. The song is fantastic that is chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, the dance routine is amazing, um, and they are able to seamlessly combine this kind of. Um, well, Diaz doing her femme fatale stuff on the stage and then segueing into that. So having this 40s vibe, having this insane cartoon vibe and kind of you see the the maskness bleed into the other stuff so that he can throw Cameron Diaz up in the air and even though she's not under the mask's influence, is (laughs) floating in the air, somersaulting repeatedly until she drops and he catches her. Um, Yeah, but I just thought, I thought the direction and everything about that scene was really wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, I, I don't know if maybe that's a good point to uh, segue into Cameron Diaz. Um, obviously, this was her big screen debut. Not sure what you what you think about the performance here. I, th- I tell you what I think is that I was watching this film going, I can't believe they found a way to waste Cameron Diaz. <laughs> I mean, like, in a sense, they for, don't. Well, <laughs> what I mean is like... For, it's not a comedic role, is it? Yeah. No. Like, and she, she is, is a, a comedic actress. actress. Yeah. And they just have her there as eye candy but, but i suppose is at this, this point, the they reason didn't know. why she's a comedic actress yeah because yeah. they didn't know she was a model before this as i found out on the cast <laughs> button on the special features from my 1990s <laughs> produced dvd um she was a model for spanish vogue and other magazines um and yeah so i guess she turned up and did this uh, did a comedy film and then five years later got the got the comedy smash that actually you know got the best out of her instead I mean, Jim, Car- Jim Carrey probably introduced them because after this, she did. I remember, um, I remember reading. I'd never seen it, but I remember reading reviews of it at the time. She did a film called The Last Supper, that was a quite obscure black comedy. And at the time, I remember people saying, "Oh, wow, this is that that actress who just used to be a model who was just eye candy in the mask." And oh, she's actually quite a good comedy actress. And then she did. Um, I mean, she's really good in Life Less Ordinary and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and Charlie's yeah. Angel, no. <laughs> Well, yeah, but it really was. You look at you look at her career; it really is a nineteen ninety nine with there's something about Mary kind of just I think fulfills that potential. The only the only film in the middle there is My Best Friend's Wedding, which is probably a little mm. bit better known, uh, but was mm. not remarkably successful. Um, and then and then yeah, she's just been huge since then. Whereas so yeah, I think it's forgivable that they don't give her comedy stuff to do here. And in terms of casting a beautiful actress to turn up and play a beautiful 40s-inspired femme fatale, um, they 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 nailed it. She's beautiful, and she looks beautiful in this movie, and she's a little bit awkward sometimes, but, um, you know, I, I, I kind of liked, liked her in it, and I liked... I liked the subversion of the two female characters that you had this yeah, beautiful I femme fatale who is, hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, go on. yeah, she's <laughs> she's destined to betray him, isn't she? In mm. if this movie hits its normal tropes, whereas the friendly and as the director on the commentary kept re- referencing Lois Lane esque reporter <laughs> is gonna she, she's gonna turn up and she's gonna be the person who's right in front of his eyes the whole time who he couldn't <laughs> and and then so you get that expedition exposition dump of you know here is oh stanley the thing you need to understand is that um maybe the mask it's not the mask that matters it's the person inside that counts um but as part of that scene i'm gonna subvert the whole thing betray you and actually cameron diaz is gonna turn out to be not only the beautiful one but the lovely one as well who you should who should really just keep going after she's great everything about her is great and I liked that. I liked that kind of little subversion um, of expectations because it's a film that really 
has no need to pander to any tropes at all. It can break any rules it wants. I felt sorry. I felt I was undercutting you slightly by saying, "Oh, I saw someone else say that," but I had read a thing where someone else pointed that out, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point." So I didn't mean to be like, "Oh, someone else." Said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. It's great. Yeah. If you asked someone who saw this at the time but hadn't seen it since to name what they remembered about the film, then you know that introduction. I mean, that was pretty much all that anyone talked about in relation to the film immediately after it came out as a. As your first ever appearance in any film ever, that scene is quite striking. Yeah, yeah. She is, but also, uh, she, also, she's right, actually, on, on, on that scene, I mean, you know, while, while I don't disagree with the instinctive reaction, why does his mate, who, by the way, is a complete arsehole, but then I think he's supposed to be, not get, yeah, not get is, sacked terrible. for immediately taking her coat and in front and of everybody it. sniffing it? And sighing. How how are you an employee uh, of a bank who doesn't get sacked for doing that? Bank I was a, um, bank with a W. <laughs> I was taking like some some notes at that point, and I just wrote down like, "Wow, everyone is." Because I wrote down to start with, "Okay, Carey's pretty big from word go," because he's kind of doing the big facial expressions, and I was like, "Oh, so he's not just big as the mask," because um, I was misremembering. And then I saw his friend turn up, and I was like. Who, who is a stand-up comic um, who was cast in that role as well, um, as Kerry was at the time. Um, but I was like, oh, no, wow, everyone's big. The the, the tone of this movie is big, slapstick, mm. farce. Um, but, yeah, that guy, I didn't like that guy. <laughs> he was a bit weird. He works for the gag at the end about his terrible friend probably wanting that mask as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think about the... About the cast in general, um, I, I mean, when we spoke about, we mentioned Peter Riga briefly, who is fantastic and seems I mean, yeah, to be yeah. having a lot of fun I mean, here. He's yeah, he, he starts out like kind of you're a bit oh, he's just having to you know be the sort of the the cop who's on his case. And he feels like he's not getting much to work with, and then slightly later on in the film, he gets a little bit of interplay with his dumb cohort, and you know, and. Peter Peter Riger is very good at being a funny straight man, and and he nails that. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he is one of those touch of class kind of actors who you can just drop into something and and he'll anchor what he's doing. Yeah. Um, I I I can't. I mean, again, it's such an incredibly broad performance, but I do quite like Peter Green as well. I um, really like um, Peter Green. Um, I not in the mask. Uh, they I think they kind of fumble that. <laughs> They fumble putting someone other than Carrie in the mask. Um, why does he have hair? Is is this kind of like yeah, the, the, the Hulk, the Hulk and the Red Hulk kind of thing? Like why? <laughs> um, it, it, I, I was I was trying to get my head around it, couldn't. Um, the the mask design for him is terrible, and they, I don't really feel like they ever really get to grips with if that's what it does to Stanley Ipkiss. What does it do to Dory? Yeah, I mean, he does well, he the, does the cartoonish stuff as well, doesn't he? And it's a bit like, well, a little bit, not as he, much. Well, yeah, but the but fact a that he does bit, it at yeah. all makes it confusing. Yeah, um, but yeah, I like that guy. Um, so this was the same year he was in Pulp Fiction. Um, I think yeah. he was cast in this first um, as uh, Zed or R- Rapey he's, Zed. He's Zed in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing, I was watching it and I was like, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to admit this. I, uh, Pulp Fiction is not the not the touchstone for this guy for me. <laughs> when I saw his face, I was like, it's the guy from Blue Streak. 
I used to love Blue Streak when I was a kid. I I had it on DVD and I watched it like on repeat. Absolutely loved it. And so whenever I see his face, I'm like, oh, it's that guy. And I just think he plays good villain because he's got that kind of, uh, he's got that villainy face, but he's also pretty. He's a pretty man. And um, I, I, and I think that probably works very well here to put him alongside Cameron Diaz, make him the villain, but also make him kind of the downtrodden villain. Um, I thought it all kind of worked for him, and I particularly liked him in the scenes where the mask was around, where kind of the people around him kind of get drawn into his, in, into the mask's fake reality. So at the are moment you, are you where particularly he's accept- talking about the awards scene, because yes. I think that's great, the way it's everything so just good. breaks for that moment. I yeah. really, really like Because it, it actually kind of starts, and it goes a bit to, and that's one of the moments where I think Carey's performance, I know what he's doing, and I do. I like the bit when he's doing all the different voices when he's dying, but it's when he does the "you you love me, you really love yeah, me" line. Yeah, he's doing just... Sally Field. Yeah, <laughs> but what's going on around him at that moment it's is, wonderful. I think, one of the best moments in the film. Yeah, yeah. So you've got you've got Peter Green next to him, kind of like suddenly realizing that he is being watched by yeah, exactly. an entire yeah. an entire audience at the Dolby Theatre, and yeah. <laughs> he starts doing his hair and then kind of yeah. acting nervously. And as soon as it disappears, he kind of shakes him back into kind of some kind of reality and draws his gun out and points it at the mask. Um, yeah. yeah, I thought it was great. Um, uh, this is what I kind of mean. I kind of understand what you're saying, James, is that I... I I couldn't completely warm to this movie fully in terms... Of, I, I, I couldn't love it the way I loved it when I was a kid. Um, but I just found myself appreciating the commitment to the ideas that it has. Um, and I think I'm always willing to be more generous to a kind of film that goes, look, this is what we want to do. We're going to set out and do it. And, you know, I imagine you could ask anyone involved in this movie what was behind that creative decision and they'd have an answer for you. Um and, you know, it would be an answer that reflects what they actually got on the screen and whether that works for everyone or doesn't. Um, because I, I think there are times where this movie can become a bit of a trudge or you can just go like, ah, this is a little bit too much right now. I, I was kind of just like a minute to breathe. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just admire its commitment to all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I I mean, I think you're you're right about all that. Like, I don't think it's a badly made movie. I just... It, it didn't entertain me on the level of a comedy. And so... Did it when, um, that's did it when you gonna... were younger? I, I I honestly don't remember. Like, I... I cannot remember whether I saw it at the cinema or not. Like, obviously I'm familiar with it because you could not avoid it. You must have seen it. Everybody saw it. Well, so. quite. <laughs> so, well, I don't think I don't think I did, you know. So, like, because I was when you five like years old when this movie yeah, came out. About seven at the time. <laughs> I was, I was, I was five. Um, so the mask, oh, the mask came out when I was five. But what I remember is being at the playground at school, running around, going to my friends. Somebody stop me! And I yeah. don't know whether I'd just seen the trailers, but we we all did it. And then the animated show turned up, which you know doubled down on that kind of stuff. And I remember when it first came onto TV watching it and remember during the 90s it barely ever being off tv and watching it kind of like saturday afternoon on itv1 at my grandma's house every weekend it's just and i i just remember absolutely loving it and because of the animated series and because of the movie uh, and because of the tv appearances 
it just felt like one of those ubiquitous films to me that like this film is always around and or this character is always around and why would I not watch? Cause it's I, I do remember when the animated series came out, I was too old to care. Like mm. the only time I was interested in the animated series was when my brother told me that they did an X-Men reference in one scene. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe I'll look at it. But I didn't. I remember watching it um, all the time, like really loving it. What's fascinating is in 1994, which is obviously this big breakthrough year for Carrie, which, you know, you look back on an actor having Dumb and Dumber, The Mask and Ace Ventura in a year is phenomenal. And all three of them got turned into animated series. Now that's just because of his naturally cartoonish looks and acting and views. <laughs> but and they're also, they're all... They're all PG-13 movies that, like, I don't think... I think if you were a kid who was watching any of those series, you probably weren't old or mature enough to watch the movies themselves yet. Were they, I mean, okay. I don't think yeah, a five-year-old a lot. It's like when they did the Little Shop of Horrors cartoon. That was... I mean, the 90s was kind of a <laughs> I mean, time the, for that, doing yeah, yeah, yeah. cartoons the thing based that on movies. I remember... I had an argument... Re- not an argument. I had a heated discussion with my friend recently. He was saying that why were they selling Guardians toys to kids? And I was saying, like, don't you remember? We had Terminator 2 figures. Like, there's no way and we Robocop. could have watched... Yeah, we couldn't have watched either of those films. Although Robocop, mm. I think there was a cartoon, wasn't there? But yeah. 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 There, were, there, were, there were Terminator and, and Aliens toys. Yeah, there were definitely I, Aliens toys. We were toys. playing with endoskeletons when <laughs> you know we, yeah. we couldn't possibly have seen the films you know legally the other and thing I, that you know i just think there are some there are some films where the marketing is enough to propel it into the consciousness of people young enough yes. to pick up on that stuff well that's exactly what happened with me and this movie um with the, with the you know the the marketing obviously hit home right. and then the animated show, but of those three carey movies that became animated shows, as far as my memory serves, the mask was the one that people liked and people cared about and stuck around for the longest. I think maybe three. I think it maybe got three series, something like that. Um, I was looking on Wikipedia, something like fifty four episodes, which is probably pretty good for 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 that kind of show. And I wonder, guys. Is there a reason why the mask seems to have disappeared from from kind of popular conversation? Because if you think about, it, I mean, Dumb and Dumber obviously got a sequel recently, a belated sequel, and um, Ace Top Ventura still seems to have a bit more cultural cachet. I, I just I was surprised when I went out to try and watch the mask this week. Saying all I've just said about how it seemed to be everywhere in the nineties, it seemed to always be on TV. I can't remember the last time I saw it show up on my TV. Um, it may be because it's just on more obscure channels or pay channels now or ever. But I went on Amazon. I was like, is there a Blu-ray? Well, there is a there is a US Blu-ray, Blu-ray which is Region 3, which I could have ordered. But it's never had a bespoke UK Blu-ray release. And the DVDs on Amazon were all kind of like... I mean, normally you could pick up a film like this for like pound fifty. And they were like quadruple that cost. Um, and so I went into my local kind of like secondhand DVD shop. And there is a film we're going to be discussing on the podcast in about uh, a, a month or so um, that I was going to pick up at the same time. And I could pick up that film for 50p on DVD. And this was five pounds. <laughs> and I was just and, and, and that is purely because this DVD is a 1990s release DVD. And I don't think it's been reissued since then. 
it seems like something that was that, that basically when DVDs came out, the mask got put on DVD, and there's not been any kind of reissue. And it doesn't this seem like a movie as, that people talk anymore about anymore. As, I, I mean, as, I think the question of why people don't talk about it is probably a different question. As far as like the reissue and stuff like and anything like that goes. This is a total punt, but could it be anything to do with the fact that um, it's a new line film, a new line after it was made became owned by Warners, and so do Warners not want to publicise or reissue films based on comics that aren't DC? Is that, could that have any bearing on it, or is that Maybe. just... I mean, but there has been a Blu-ray release, but then again, they've obviously gone as minimal it's not been like let's release the blu-ray in all territories it's like okay mm. here's a it's not been let's put together a load of retrospectives i was gonna say there's no like there's for no a, 20th anniversary blu-ray which no. by the way just looking it up on a 23 million budget made 350 million dollars in 1994 yeah. that's i mean that's <laughs> massive for you know for anything it yeah. is weird that it doesn't have the i mean it has cultural impact in a sense, in that anyone can look at. You can say the mask to anyone, and anyone knows that it's a Jim Carrey. You can film. say smoking. People know to what anyone. he looks like. People well, know the can you, phrases. But can but... you say that to anyone our age and older? Like, do do today's teenagers know the mask? No, but today's do today's teenagers know Dumb and Dumber or Ace Ventura? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I think they might. <laughs> do today's I could teenagers know Jim Carrey? That's that's also true. As, that guy from a load of terrible movies in the yeah. last ten years, and as Jenny McCarthy's um, vaccination-hating um, partner. Hmm. I mean, you're right. So, th- but this movie outgrossed both of those other two. In 1994, it outgrossed mm. Ace Ventura and it outgrossed, um, it outgrossed Dumb and Dumber. It just, I, I, I'm just shocked by how it seems to have fallen away from the conversation. To be fair, I like, mean, 2005, I you, but I don't know why. 2005, <laughs> they did Son of the Mask, so it's not like it well, maybe completely that, disappeared. Yeah, well, is, also is maybe Son of the Mask. <laughs> I mean. Dumb, Dumb and Dumber did also have a terrible, well, prequel rather than sequel, and that, and that didn't harm it, its reputation too much. But I do wonder if Son of the Mask was damaging to people's perception of the original. Um, <laughs> Budget eighty-four million, box office fifty-seven point six. <laughs> I, like I've, again, something I've seen a couple of different people say is um, the assumption that the bit with the dog getting the mask is from the sequel when actually it's in the original. I think it happens in the sequel as well, but people think, it might think be in the oh, tra- it's a I think it might have been in the trailer in the, the sequel. Yeah, I, oh, it's a terrible thing that they, you know, they went that ridiculous route in the sequel. It's like, well, actually, no, they did do it in the original as well. And it's mm. not terrible, actually, the point at which they do that. But We should talk about the dog. Um, the dog's great. He's <laughs> the dog's great. What, <laughs> what really I found great. weird is... Um, uh, my friends have got a Jack Russell that is named Milo after Milo in this film. Mm. But I was surprised. I, I was picturing the dog in this film as looking exactly like their dog Milo. And he doesn't. He's, he's got more brown on him. And yet the point at which he uh, bites things and you pick him up and he's, he dangles from them, that is exactly what the Milo in To be fair, that's does, just Jack so. Russell's, isn't it? Like, well, it is a Jack Russell thing. insane. Yeah. Who yeah. was it on, um, which of you guys was it on our email thread that was saying that you watching it with your half and they immediately knew that Stanley's surname was Ipcus and they couldn't yeah, remember that was, why? Yeah, that, that, that was Joe. Like, Joe was kind of half watching it while I was watching it. She was getting on with other things. But just as it started and, and she was like, and she vaguely remembered having seen it but couldn't remember anything much about the plot or anything. But she said, 
Ipkiss, that's his name, isn't it? Ipkiss. I was like, yeah. Mm. She was like, how do I remember that? I was like, I've got no idea how you <laughs> well, remember that. First of all, it's a great name. But I remember, so I, I sent this movie on, and like I said, haven't watched it for 15 years at least. And I, 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 I yeah, Ipkiss was in my mind. And also, I knew the dog was Milo. The dog had yeah, made a lasting impression knows that on dog me. Is called Milo. Yeah, yeah, and that, that was a, another movie that this reminded me of. That you know, but obviously came ten, fifteen years later. Maybe had similar influences. Um, was the artist because you know you, you had Uggy in <laughs> the artist, and Uggy and Milo probably have a lot in common in terms of their like fan, fantastic physical comedy from a dog, um, and also you know like I said, this film seems to have silent movie influences in terms of its physical comedy, and and that's there as well. I mean, Milo, some of the stuff he does, the scene where he is running up the side of the building to try and get into the jail where Jim Carrey is. And all you see is the dog comes into shot and then disappears from shot and then comes back in and then disappears. Um, stuff like that, so simple, so funny. It's like I, I have so much respect for the craft of this film. What's weird when, is actually, I know, I mean, you're talking about the cultural impact and then you're talking about the dog. What's weird is, my, I mean, you, and you mentioned, remember that his name was Milo. Milo seems to be a really popular name for dogs. Like, I'm actually just looking it up and it appears in, in popular dog names. And I've seen. Um, a certain journalist who happened, a journalist in inverted commas, who happens to have that name. Um, and I've seen him retweeting people who are obviously talking about their dogs as if they're talking about him in a, in a joking <laughs> way, kind of. Um, and it's like, it, it, and I don't know if it's, is there another reason why dogs would be called Milo? Or are there really that many people who remember that there was a Jack Russell called Milo in this film and so they, they name him that? <laughs> to be fair, if someone said Milo just did a shit on my doorstep, I'd be like, oh, the journalist guy. <laughs> yeah oh, it's the first time we've referenced that particular supervillain on the podcast um, <laughs> um, speaking um, oh, oh, another oh, no. thing Sorry. another thing that, get, that came up in the um, in the commentary of this uh, it, going back to what you said a second ago Seb with Son of the Mask um, Russell seemed to be fairly sure that they were going to be doing a sequel, like on the commentary of this DVD. And like, didn't know whether he was going to be involved, but was like, yeah, there seems to be a sequel coming, and that, uh, that you know, Jim Carrey probably and Cameron D- and saying because uh, Amy Asbeck, who plays the journalist, saying that she and her agent were really happy because in the original cut of the film, she mm. is killed off um, at the point at which she disappears from the movie, um, and that she was pleased because that that meant she'd probably get called back for the sequel. And obviously that that never happened either. It's weird how this movie just kind of like disappeared into the ether. Do you want me to read from the production section of Son of the Mask? Oh yeah, do it, please. (laughs) Not long after the release of The Mask, it was announced in Nintendo Power that Jim Carrey would be returning in a sequel called The Mask 2. The magazine held a contest where the first prize would be awarded a walk-on role in the film. Director wow. Chuck Russell, who helmed the original film, expressed his interest in a, in a mass sequel in the 1996 Laserdisc commentary. Yes, that's what I listen to, So obviously. that's what you listen to, yeah. Yeah. I, I like it because I'm just looking at it now. Um, it, the, the final note on Wikipedia, which I think is very important. Since the film never came to fruition, in the final issue of Nintendo Power, an apology was issued to the winner of the contest. <laughs> so they didn't invite them to appear in Son of the Mask. No. But that's, I mean, well, it's in, surprising. Well, in a way, that, a blessing. I mean, I know, obviously, you know, Son of the Mask happened eventually for God knows whatever reason, but 
it's kind of surprising, given its box office and given Carey's status, that there wasn't a sequel. The only reason I can think is that Carey didn't want to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm baffled as to why he did Ace Ventura 2 and well, not it says, The Mask Again, two, it says here, but... Carey revealed that he was offered $10 million to star in The Mask 2, but turned it down because his experiences on Ace Ventura 2 convinced him that reprising a character he'd previously <laughs> played offered him no challenges. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's fair. Can we yeah. can we all commit now? We are never going to do Son of the Mask on this podcast. <laughs> just to, just to reassure our listeners. Um, yeah, if, I, to be I, fair, I if think... we go long enough, if we get enough <laughs> Patreon money, okay. Oh God, now that you've said that, if we hit the target for a commentary, oh someone's, someone's going to try and make us do it as the commentary, aren't they? Okay. It, well, here's the one thing I'm willing to commit to: the next early two thousands Alan Cumming comic book movie we're going to do is Josie and the Pussycats. Because that's happening at some point. I am, I am, I am hell bent on doing that on the podcast. Because that, yeah. But whether it, whether movie. it's the next one, because we might get to X two. I was going to say. That. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot. No, I've, I've made that commitment now, guys. So if we, okay, we when, have to if do and when we get to X two, before we do X two. Yeah, we've got a lot of X Men because we committed to that chronological order. So X two is a long way in the future. <laughs> We're never going to do the Wolverine three. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, th- I think we might have. I think we might have covered most of the stuff I wanted to hit on, guys. Is there anything else that you wanted to you wanted uh, to bring up about this? Seb movie? wanted to talk about the soundtrack quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. Because oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's like, well, it's a it's a combination of there's a. It's just got a really kind of cheap and and you know a, a very unsubstantial soundtrack for a lot of it, and also the fact that there is nothing that dates it more than the fact that it's got this horrible mid-90s swing revival thing to it. <laughs> Do you know, I kind of... I was watching it going like, this feels like if someone was given the tape from a Nando's and told to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I feel like I should be eating chicken at the moment. Uh, that won't make any sense to our uh, international Americans viewers. know what Nando's is. No, because they got really... They got really confused when um, yeah. Cheeky Nando's yeah, but, became a yeah, thing. Yeah, so now they know. And then they all looked it up, so now they know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you don't know what Nando's is, it's up to you to figure out. We Look, figured out I'm what Homecoming is, was, sort of. All I'm saying is Brian I Michael Bendis has never heard of a Cheeky Nando's. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, this movie does feel incredibly 90s, doesn't it, Seb? Not, not just the soundtrack. Everything about it feels so... It feels so sp- like it, it's, it's a got time that indefinable nineties to it. Just the look and oh yeah, it's just it's not necessarily a bad thing. In in a, in a sense, it's quite a warm and comforting thing. But <laughs> yeah, fil- films in the nineties did did not look like films of the years that followed, or indeed the films that the, the years that preceded. Um, when it was opening up and it showed Edge City and it showed the city, I really and- like that opening shot. By the way, actually, There's, well, I- there seems to be no good reason for giving the city as much character as that opening shot Ooh, gives do, it. Do you want me, do you want me really to drop a knowledge that. bomb at this point? Go, Go for on, it. Then. So, as revealed on the director's commentary, <laughs> I really got my money's worth with this DVD. <laughs> there, was a, there was a whole sequence with Vikings um, coming to America and basically you think, oh, the Vikings coming to America, so this is when they conquer it. No, or, or this is what you know, this is what they want to do with this land. Now the Vikings are there because they want to get as far away from their homeland as possible to dump this mask and then go <laughs> back to where they came from, which apparently was shot and was was a thing. And then that was, but it basically it slowed down the movie and they cut it eventually. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if you did it deliberately with tying into your question, but like 
there is no good reason in the rest of the film for this to be set in a fictional city called Edge City. Well, I wondered uh, whether that was a comic book thing. Is it? Um, I can't remember if... I mean, I only just reread them, but I can't remember if the... The comics are not really specific about geography in the way that the film isn't. There's no reason in the film for it to be set in a fictional city. No, I just I- quite like that it's quite comicsy. And again, you know, this is yeah. a sort of... And James may disagree because this is a Marvel versus a DC thing, but as I talked about earlier, I like the fictional cities. So I like any comic book movie that sets itself in a fictional city rather than a real one. It could have um, called itself Studio Backlot, I think, just as convincing. <laughs> there, there were a lot of sound stages when <laughs> when they were doing the big song and dance number. I was like, this, this is. But apparently, the garage that they go into is the um, oh, it's the Ghostbusters. It's the Ghostbusters. It yeah. is. It totally is. As yeah. soon as they were, as soon as he walked through the door, I was like. That's the fire station from Ghostbusters. It, it, it's like they yeah. don't even try to disguise it. It's even got some of the same equipment in the background from ten years earlier. It is definitely hook and ladder number eight or nine or whatever it yeah. is. Um, I kept yeah. getting, I kept getting like flashes to other movies. So, like I said, I, I mean, kind of eighties and nineties movies. That opening shot, the look of the city, kind of reminded me of the opening of the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, I don't know why <laughs> that jumps into that, my head. It, it felt slight. I think maybe it's because there's a big um, sewage pipe going into the the river, but it felt slightly like something like Toxic Avenger or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it just had that slight schlockiness. I got, I got it, quite a lot you know. of Burton's Batman from this as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, yeah. it's com- it's it's five years after that, and it's it's as part of that wave, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, well, mm. that mini wave. So yeah. it's yeah, there's going mean, to be a all of the watery stuff had me thinking of Splash as well, and then <laughs> just the very the very concepts of the movie. I was thinking this actually isn't a mile a million miles away from Jumanji. I can imagine Jumanji maybe uh, being Jumanji one of those was that's definitely going through my head while I was watching it. Yeah. I mean, like I yeah. say, I, I couldn't... It, it was a movie that just reminded me of so many other things. And mostly things that I liked. And I think that's why I came off generally kind of positive. And then I was wondering just how long the whole kind of... the This being a comic book movie in the superhero mould. Whether... Is there a hulkness to the mask? You know, you know in terms of turning green and turning into this, this like, alter ego? Um... Or is it more of a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing? You know, the, at the core of the idea. Do you think I there's mean, much Hulk in him? No, the Hulk is kind of Jekyll and Hyde, really. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's, can't it be both? <laughs> it absolutely can. <laughs> um, well, so final thoughts. I, I kind of enjoy. I couldn't couldn't fall in love with it the way that five, six-year-old Joe did. Um, but um, it did make me Google a bit of animated mask on YouTube afterwards and I watched a couple of clips so that was fun um, <laughs> so what, what about you Seb I think we kind of know that where, where James has fallen on it um, yeah I mean it's probably I would definitely of of those three Jim Carrey films in that year I would place it firmly in the middle it's, it's nowhere near as good as Dumb and Dumber, but it's light years ahead of Ace Ventura for me um, but it's, 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 it's good fun and I, I, I like as well that it's Actually, uh, probably unusually for that era of comic book films, such as there were any, and you know during that time, it's not afraid to be comic booky, and I like that about it. You know, it has it's got a very strong sense of itself, and while it deviates very significantly, um, you know, in terms of uh, plot and character stuff, while lifting some moments from the comics, so it's not necessarily that it owes a great debt to its own source material but it does feel very affectionate towards just the idea of being comic booky in general. So 
Um, I, I like that. And uh, yeah, and, and also, it's a hard film to dislike. It's just got a quite likable kind of innocence to it, really, I think. Apart from if you find the mask creepy. Well, the mask is creepy, and when you know, like when he. But then, as I say, I, th- I think I think the key moment when you're supposed to realise that the mask is creepy is when he meets Cameron Diaz in the park and does the the Pepe yeah. Le Pew thing, and yeah. that's when you realise, ah, okay, no, this guy's, this isn't the guy that that she'll want to be with, or that kind of thing. Not not least because he's got a big green face, but you know, it's like it's not just that he's kind of suave and cool; he's actually excessive in in all regards. You know, yeah, so. Pepe Le Pew's creepy as well, though, isn't he? Oh, completely. <laughs> <laughs> there is some problematic Looney Tunes characters. He, he might be up there. He might be up there. Well, it depends if you're supposed to take him at face value or not, I suppose. No, no I think he is just problematic generally. <laughs> We're getting a Speedy Gonzalez movie, though, so that's exciting. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a Speedy Gonzalez movie happening. Why would they make a movie of the worst Looney Tunes character? Oh. He does have the catchphrase that everyone knows. Do you want to do it? I really we've, don't. We, we, I was going to say after all, after this long of not dropping that many mask impressions on this. Uh, <laughs> so anyone want to? Thought we'd leave anyone, them to you, Joe. It's it's it, it's your speciality. I did smoking. I don't. Uh, well, I'd, you say it's my speciality. I'm, it's my speciality at doing terrible ones. <laughs> I'm just I'm, no, I'm imagining a modern remake where he says vaping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that'll do. That'll do. I was going to ask one of you to drop a spicy meatballer, but uh... <laughs> that's my favourite one. You know, <laughs> uh, there's so many good ones. I think we could we could have just done this podcast with, with the with mask quotes. I'm still I'm still waiting for when we get to Dark Knight Rises and we do the whole thing in our best Bane voices. <laughs> that should be that should be Patreon exclusive because that's going to be gold. even even harder to listen to than our recording pre-Batman v Superman in the pizza restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, James, you, you were not as much of a fan of... The, would, you, would you place it third in the Jim Carrey 1994 oh, canon? definitely, but I like Ace Ventura, so obviously I would. Yeah. Um, well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting I mean, this. And Ace, that, actually, that also has a very dodgy storyline about a transgendered person being sort of key to the plot that's yeah we should do a whole jim carrey series thinking about it should we do a jim carrey spin-off podcast yeah okay okay we'll commit to that's coming uh we'll we'll do that when inhumans comes out um yeah. <laughs> we, we we that that's the uh, degree we're willing to commit um I promise <laughs> okay guys before you do your uh comic book recommendations i'm gonna make a movie recommendation based on this it's deadpool go watch deadpool guys if you enjoyed <laughs> this or, or if you've watched deadpool recently and you're like i liked that who was doing that 20 years ago? It was Jim Carrey in The Mask in 1994, so go watch that. Um, but Seb, what is your what is your comic book recommendation this week? So yeah, I get the easy one because I've actually read the comics, so I get to recommend the actual comic that it's based on. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, there, is, there are various short miniseries. Um, the original miniseries is just called The Mask um, and is issues is four issues, but it's actually five because any collection that you find of it will include issue zero, which is the Stanley Ipkiss story. Um, mm. And I think you, you need the two together. You need the Ipkiss stuff and then the Callaway stuff and all of that together is what feeds into the movie, essentially. And it, it's when it's at its best. Um, the thing is, I don't know necessarily, if you unless you go and find like a second-hand trade, if you'll get a, a collection of just that. 
Um, so if you want, depending on how much you want to read, um, there is an omnibus, um, the Mask Omnibus Volume 1, which is on Comixology, and it's nine quid for 374 pages. Um, I'm looking up the page now. That's how I know the exact number of pages. <laughs> um, and that actually collects all of uh, the Mask, the Mask Returns, um, the, and the Mask Strikes Back, which are basically the three miniseries that were done by RQD and Mankey together. And then after that, they sometimes work on it, but as a pair, just doing the mask. So that's kind of the purest mask stuff. So you get Mask and Mask Returns, which are before the movie, and Mask Strikes Back, which are after the movie. Um, and to be honest, you know, while that is a longer chunk to read, um, it, it's, it's all a very quick read. So I, th- I think you could get through the whole thing fairly quickly if you want to pick up that omnibus. If you only want to read a short amount or you haven't got a lot of time, then just read the first miniseries. Um, because I think the first miniseries is the best and as I say is frequently very funny um, and I, I really think it's a, it's an interesting one to compare directly to the film Excellent um, James what are you recommending? Uh, I kind of struggle to figure something out here so I've gone for a very tenuous like in, you will not believe the tenuousness of this recommendation <laughs> but I was thinking The Mask is a, a film that people don't realise was a comic. So I was thinking maybe do another set of comics which kind of made the transition without people really taking a lot of notice. Uh, It's actually in the opposite direction, but I want you to go and read the first volume of the Matrix comics. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because for my money, the Matrix comics are some of the best material that they ever did in that universe. And what they did was, because the Wachowskis were big sort of comics fans, they got a load of really cool indie writers and cartoonists to do a bunch of awesome little stories set in the Matrix world. And Mm. they serialised them on the website, and I used to be glued to it between the two sequels. Between, uh, Between the first film and the sequels, I used to refresh it every week looking for new comics. And I thought, not you know, not many people have read them because they're, I think they're probably out of print by now. And the Matrix kind of sank after, you know, <laughs> after the unfortunate unpleasantness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't see any other circumstance under which I would recommend them on the podcast. So I think, you know, tenuous link, but film related to indie comics. Yeah. The Matrix yeah. Volume 1. That's good. I mean, another nineties movie. I mean, there is an argument that the Matrix is a superhero movie. Yeah. Oh, it completely is. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. totally a superhero. He does movie. fly off yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, he gets the Superman. If, shot, if you've he? ever read Grant Morrison talking about how much he thinks <laughs> it rips off his own Invisibles, comics as well. yeah. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And also, I was one of those guys, like, because I loved the Matrix when I was well, like, kind of in that period between the Matrix and the Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> I was just in that period when just, it was good. Yes, I Did was just ever... absolutely hooked. Watched it on repeat and went out and bought the Animatrix, which is also pretty good. I was going to say, did you good. ever see the Animatrix? Yeah, Sim- similar yeah. thing. Similar thing. Yeah. As good. Excellent. Well, that's going to be an interesting week of uh, of, of comics to read. Um, but we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this week, guys... Um, I, so, I, I, I don't know whether this is strictly true after, after that discussion, but... So it's fair to say that the the mask comic, while it has funny things in it, wasn't strictly a comedic comic book, but got turned into a big mainstream Hollywood comedy. 
So what I want to know, uh, where, where James, I'm matching you in the tenuous links. Uh, what I want to know is which non-comedic comic book you would like to see turned into a mainstream Hollywood comedy today. Um, so James, I'll come to you first. Uh, yeah, uh, a non-comedic comic which could make a good comedy movie. So my pick is this kind of obscure Marvel character called uh, Spider-Man. Because I think there's room to do a comedic take on Spider-Man, and I don't think anyone's quite managed that in the in the movies. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm kind of joking, but also, like, in the same way, Lois and Clark was a kind of sort of romantic comedy take on Superman. I think Spider-Man's a versatile enough character that you could do exactly the same thing with it. And I don't like. There's a chance Spider-Man: Homecoming will be that, that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, I feel like if the Amazing Spider-Man had been made ten years ago, it might have been like that, where they were yeah. aiming at teens. Whereas in this case, they were going, "Oh, we're aiming at teens, so it's going to be sort of angsty and twilighty." Okay, uh, I I have a question for you, James. Go on. Is it possible? The movie set to be released on 21st of December 2018, currently named Untitled Animated Spider-Man Project, <laughs> written by written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller of 21 Jump Street Lego <laughs> Movie Clone High Fame, may in fact be the movie you've just pitched. Well, if it is, I'll accept a mere 10% of the royalties. <laughs> I'm just worried about me as, you know, kind of greenlighting this project that potentially someone has beaten us to it already. <laughs> <laughs> as I mean, much gonna, as I like the idea. It's going to happen, like a kind of prestige uh, illusionist situation. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I'll I'll back yours. Um, is In that situation, are we maybe not going to be able to use the Spider-Man rights and have to call him, I don't know, like Bug Lad a, or something? Arachno guy. Yes, Okay. So James is pitching Arachno Guy for uh, January 2019. Yeah. Um, Seb, do you have anything to beat Arachno Guy? Well, I, I just noticed again <coughs> that James has shamefully played for your vote this time by um, referencing Lois and Clark. Yes, know, knowing that, that will get you on side. Um, no, I, I went down a slightly different route from James. And I, I'm not sure if it will be one that you'll go for but we'll see i mean i so i I mean i kind of tried to think of what was the most serious comic that i could think of that that you could adapt into a comedy and i eventually landed on um i don't know if you've heard of this um it's a very it was a very guardian friendly comic um called jimmy corrigan the smartest kid on earth by chris ware um so if you've never heard of it it's a the name rings a bell but i know i haven't yeah, it's it's a very dense and elusive and um, formalist um, comic about... I mean, I'll, I'll read the plot description from Wikipedia because I think that sums up why I think it would make such a, a great comedy film. Um, so, Jimmy Corrigan is a meek, lonely, 36-year-old man who meets his father for the first time in the fictional town of uh, Wakosha, Michigan, over Thanksgiving weekend. Jimmy is an awkward and cheerless character with an overbearing mother and a very limited social life. After an ill-timed phone call, Jimmy agrees to meet his father without telling his mother. The experience is stressful for him as he can barely communicate with anyone other than his mother, let alone his estranged father. 
The two do very little together, and Jimmy's father, while well-intentioned, comes off to Jimmy as slightly racist and inconsiderate. <laughs> a parallel story, set in the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, shows Jimmy's grandfather as a lonely little boy and his difficult relationship with an abusive father, Jimmy's great-grandfather. Um, the novel uses numerous flashback scenes and parallel storylines. Many pages are devoid of text and some contain complex iconic diagrams. Notable motifs in Jimmy Corrigan include a robot, a bird, a peach, a miniature horse and a flawed superhero figure. Um, so I'm thinking Adam Sandler comedy. Sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, it sounded a bit like Anomalisa to begin with and then... <laughs> And to know with the flashback, I'm wondering how you do the comedic abusive father in the <laughs> in the flashbacks. That seems tougher. Unless you do, you know, you do the slapstick violence of the mask. There you go. You've nailed it. <sighs> do you know what? I think I have to go with you, Seb, just because I don't think we've got the rights to do James's movie. I think he's been preempted by the all-powerful Lord Miller. And I don't want to go up against those guys. Those guys, you know, they take terrible ideas and make them good all the time. Um, so, you know, they've certainly got more power to do that than I do. So, um, I'm going to go with, uh, your pitch this week, Seb. Um, I'm just looking at pictures of this Jimmy Corrigan thing on, uh, on, uh, on, uh, Google at the moment. And, uh, if, if yeah, I'd known. Sand- Sandler wouldn't be my first choice. What about Kevin James and Sandler can play the abusive <laughs> 1920s great grandfather? Is there a, is there a role for Chris Rock? Rob Schneider? They can add one. Um. Rob, Rob Schneider could be the um, the drunk actor who used to play uh, essentially a Superman type character on on TV, um, who sleeps with Jimmy's mother when he's a child. He, Jimmy goes to meet him at a convention, and and he um, hooks up with Jimmy's mum. So that could be Rob Schneider. If David, I know. David Spade, is there anything for him? <laughs> Steve Buscemi normally likes this kind of thing, doesn't he? Let's get Buscemi say, involved. It's about to say like, didn't isn't this just Ghost World? But. <laughs> I mean, if if you were going to do a serious movie adaptation of Jimmy Corrigan, which you couldn't because it would make no sense of a movie, it would be Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Just, if Excellent. I'd known, if I'd known this was the direction, I'd have picked something by Michael DeForge and gone really all out on it. <laughs> in, in fact, yeah, right. don't, don't don't Google that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we've workshopped Jimmy Corrigan though, so I now think Buscemi is the main guy, and then. Adam Sandler is the 1920s or whatever great-grandfather who is beating his son, and his son is Kevin James. Because that would be funny, I think. <laughs> I think we'd be on board with that. I think we would. I like it, and yeah, the more I, I'm, I'm now, I've turned it into a trilogy. That's how confident I am in this movie, Soaks. <laughs> that's not as, confident, right. not as confident as James Cameron is in Avatar, then. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> all, all I can say is that Chris Ware will be delighted, because... Um, He's he's renowned for having a sense of humour about this kind of thing. <laughs> oh God, nobody tweet him. Is he on Twitter? I don't think so. No, I bet <laughs> Kevin James is though. So we can approach him on there. Um, okay, well that's it for this week. <laughs> if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM or your podcast app of choice. Uh, you can leave us a rating or review. Um, or you could also head over to Patreon, uh, co- patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe and back us there. And uh, Seb, James, you've both got Patreon-related updates for us. Uh, yeah, so just quickly, I'd like to thank our latest Patreon backer, uh, Ian Hughes, who has put us slightly closer to our, late, uh, to our next goal. 
Uh, if we get eight more dollars a month, we will be recording our fan commentary on the superhero movie chosen by our Patreon backers, which, as discussed earlier, could now be Son of the Mask. <laughs> um, and Seb, Patreon uh, site updates. You've got an update on that? Um, yeah, just to let you know, um, obviously, we at the target that we're currently at, our aim is to publish one article on cinematicmultiverse.com per month. Um, usually, the aim is to put this out and send it just as an exclusive to the Patreon backers for a week first. Um, but this this time, this month, what I've done is I've written um, a guide to my thoughts on DC Rebirth. And specifically, I wanted to sort of go through each title and explain for people who don't necessarily know the comics beforehand, like who the creative teams are and what the take on the character is. Because I've, I've read a lot of people's opinions on, on Rebirth, but they're aimed at people who read comics. And if, if you guys are interested in checking out DC stuff as a result of Rebirth, um, I've tried to give a typically cinematic universe more introductory take on every single one of the titles it's quite long Um, but because of the fact that um, information is kind of you know constantly coming out about these books and because they are all starting to launch um, in a little over a month I thought if I delayed publishing the article publicly it would be out of date by the time I did so for once this one hasn't gone to Patreon back as early if you go on the site now it we have I haven't published it at the time and we're recording this but by the time we publish the episode it should be on the site so check it out at cinematicmultiverse.com and um to make up for it I'll do we'll do something else for the Patreon backers um as an exclusive at some point to make up for this month um, next time we do a feature um it will be exclusive to you guys so that's just if you care it's our little way of saying thank you <laughs> Um, that is definitely my most anticipated article said because I want to get my head around rebirth and figure out whether there's anything I should read or try out. Um, so I'm well, if you I'm can stand to, to read five thousand words on thirty odd different comics, then, <laughs> then yay! And if you can't, just wait like two or three years and DC will reboot everything again, anyways. So. <laughs> Well, we get Seb to reboot the article if and when that happens. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, you can find more episodes of the podcast or those articles over at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm sorry, Tony. If I see a situation pointed south, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. Sometimes I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Captain America Civil War. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 